0: Valley Shepherds exists to equip God's people for effective gospel ministry. Whether you're a pastor, elder, deacon, Sunday school teacher, or church member, our goal is to help you think through the scriptures and apply them faithfully. Valley Shepherds offers a variety of print and digital resources, including articles, Bible study guides, and more. Simply go to valleyshepherds.org to access. You can also access the Valley Shepherds podcast on a variety of streaming platforms, including Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and more. Simply type in Valley Shepherds Podcast into the search bar to access each episode. We release a new episode every week, so don't forget to click the follow button on your favorite streaming platform to receive a notification when a new episode is made available. Finally, you can follow us on social media. On Facebook, go to Valley Shepherds and hit the like button. And on Instagram, go to Valley underscore Shepherds and hit the follow button. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome to a new episode of Valley Shepherds. I'm Will alongside Pastor Jamie and uh, we have a special guest that you are not going to hear from just yet, uh, but <laughs> that we'll introduce here in just a few moments. This week we're actually diving into uh, part 2 of a discussion we started last week uh, on theological triage and the local church. I'm really excited because this is going to be a slightly different angle than we took last week. Last week we just sort of explored what it was and we'll review that here in a few moments, but Uh, This week, we're going to dive a little bit deeper into church history, uh, maybe draw out some ways that the church has historically uh, accomplished theological triage and ways they didn't, Mm -hmm. and then also ways that we here, 21st century, 2021, uh, can draw some wisdom and uh, apply those ideas uh, in real life scenarios, discipleship, church life, those kinds of things. So I'm excited. But before we dive in, I'm going to have Jamie uh, talk a little bit about our special guest.
1: That's right. For the first time ever in a Valley Shepherds podcast, we have a special guest with us, a friend of mine who is the associate pastor at Church United in Stanton, Virginia, not Staunton, but Stanton, Virginia, and his name is Pastor Mark Simpson, and uh, he is a friend of mine. Um, pastor Mark Simpson is uh, is someone who is an advocate for and someone who is involved and engaged in the work Of helping pastors regularly, and particularly he has a heart for those who sense a call to ministry and who are beginning that journey. And uh, he uh, leads a group called Advanced Initiative that uh, I've been blessed to be a part of. Uh, I'm very excited about the work that he's doing. I wanted to talk about that um, briefly and uh, just, uh, you know, welcome to the show here. We're glad to have you. So Pastor Mark, tell us a little bit about who you are, and about Advanced Initiative. Yeah,
2: thank you, Jamie. Thank you, Will. It's uh, good to be with you all today. Uh, And uh, just to get an opportunity to talk about Advanced Initiative, I've been in ministry for a few decades now, and uh, one thing that's always been a personal passion for me is uh, um, passing on ministry leadership from generation to generation. And so Advanced Initiative is an outgrowth of that for me personally, and uh, I'm grateful that uh, God has allowed me to uh, connect with others who share that passion. And uh, basically, so a quick snapshot of what we're doing with Advanced Initiative is it's this ministry leadership experience um, for, in in particular, for individuals who are sensing that God may be calling them into a position of pastoral or ministry leadership within the local church. Yeah. And so for me, part of the reason why I think that's so important right now is I hear as I talk with people who are in ministry leadership right now, that there is such a lack of leadership within the Western church that uh, to take the place of those who are currently leading and have been faithfully leading for, for uh, generations. And so the advanced initiative, uh, a big part for us is contributing to replenishing these church leadership reservoirs for generations to come so that the local church can then multiply through healthy church planting, healthy revitalization efforts, um, in the sense that what we want to do with with these individuals who are going through advanced initiative is we want them to walk away and to say, I was mentored, I was equipped, I was experienced, and I, and I have a network of pastors and ministry leaders. And so uh, that's what we work toward. It's a, it's a two-year program right now. It's two-year experience that includes classroom teaching. It includes community with uh, uh, individuals who are in that same place, but then also seasoned uh, pastors and ministry leaders. And then uh, also includes, and the backbone of all of it is what we would call evaluated experience, and deliberate practice. And so these these folks are not, uh, we are not a seminary. We, we don't desire to be a seminary. We are partnering with um, Christian education to help those who go through to gain uh, um, uh, college credit, uh, mm-hmm. seminary credit for what they do. Um, but we believe that what we can do as pastors and churches to contribute to the development and the uh, experience of these leaders is to provide them with that experience in which Uh, They're not just being thrown out there and saying good luck, but they're arm in arm with seasoned pastors who can encourage them and help them to evaluate the experience that they're getting and get the most out of their successes and those failures. But they've got that safety net under them. And so excited about where that's going and uh, just how God has has been working. Um, There's a couple different iterations of that right now, one that's taking place in Ohio and then the one that's taking place here in Virginia. That uh, we're seeing individuals uh, um, who are are gaining experience that they're saying is invaluable. And so right now, um, anyone who's interested in that, whether it's a pastor who says, I have a heart for that. We need pastors who say, I want to come alongside of these young guys. And uh, these individuals who say, I I want an experience like that because I want to last in ministry. um, They certainly can reach out to us and I'd love to have a conversation with them. Sounds great.
1: Yeah, I've really enjoyed being a part of it. Uh, I think that uh, I I enjoy the sort of the, the natural, real uh, feel of the of the training of the time together, and um, I've enjoyed the material. In fact, the some of the material that uh, you've put together has inspired some of the talk this That's week right. and last week. As we think about triage, as we think about cooperation, so it has helped me as a leader. Um, but I also know being in context or in conne- uh, connection with Some of the the younger guys that are in that group, I've seen them grow, uh, not only in their desire to serve, but man, I've seen them grow in their knowledge of what it means to become a pastor or to lead as a pastor. So uh, I'm all in with what you're doing. And uh, if you are a pastor or church leader and you're listening to this, man, we'll uh, we'll put it on our show notes how you can get in touch with Pastor Mark Simpson. Uh, But reach out to him, man. This is a great, great ministry. I love how it's... um, um, sort of centered away from the seminary and is more centered on local church. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. I spent some time away from full time church work and filled a lot of pulpits. And along the eighty one corridor, there's a lot of churches mm-hmm. that have pastors that are sort of filling that niche. But once you get on the the tributary roads and kind of going out. Um, there's needs uh in those churches for sure. solid godly pastors mm-hmm. i mean mm-hmm. so whether you're talking about uh small rural or medium sized suburban or even urban, these kind of programs I think are the future, and i'm so very thankful that you have a heart for it and I consider it just a a real privilege to uh, to be involved in it. And uh, even trying to talk uh, Pastor Will to uh, to joining us on some of these Saturday <laughs> mornings. Indeed so wonderful. yeah, yeah. So
0: I mean, I love the idea that guys are getting not just uh, not just the training, but they're also getting the fellowship part. Right. Because having yeah. having been a, a senior pastor who was the lone staff member, That's it's right. a hard gig to yeah. try and, and minister even to a small church by yourself, mm-hmm. right? right? And so. Yeah. Uh, to have to have the experience, but then to also have that network of guys that are walking alongside you, and then to have the guys above you, right, in the in the experience sense, um, to really be able to call on and to have that that support is, ah, man, I wish, I wish I had some of that <laughs> back in the early days of of ministry. So I, I love what you're doing, Mark, and I will be a part of it. In the coming weeks, all right, we're gonna hold, uh, <laughs> hold that against you there. No. So that's hold right. you to it. So we have it on record. That's it. That's right. It's Once on. it's on on. Uh, uh, it's I was on gonna say name. tape. We're gonna age ourselves here. <laughs> so
1: one of the things that's interesting is that as as you grow as a ministry leader, and we have you know several decades represented of just experience and education, all that kind of stuff, is that your lens of how you see the word, how you see the world, um, how you see the church. Uh, it, it matures, you know, it, it changes over time. And it's not like the truth of God changes. It's just in discernment and application, you see things a little bit differently. Right. And so, one of the things that, that I feel Advanced Initiative um, does and uh, continues to train, you know, young men who are, have that kind of heart for ministry uh, it is I feel like it, it helps you discern and understand uh, triage and cooperation. Um, how do you weigh out? doctrine how do you know when to apply a certain uh, doctrine to cooperation to not uh, the realistic uh, picture of this is that you know we're all pastors that have a relationship with one another and we know pastors in our area and in the valley um, what uh, how do we relate to them um, what is it what is possible for us to do uh, together um, as far as gospel kingdom work is concerned? Um, Are there limitations on that denominationally between um, local churches, autonomy of local churches working together? And so um, as you engage in ministry, um, these questions come to the forefront and having a way to sort them out is very important. And, you know, last week we talked about uh, this idea of triage, where triage comes from, um, this uh, French word that means to sort, all right? And as we apply it in different contexts, we apply it to the spiritual, we apply it to um, that, that it comes from really the, the medical field as the way we know it. Um, but medically, if you have a disaster or if you have an ER or you have some kind of uh, you know, problem with uh, some kind of medical disaster even, um, when people come into an ER, when they arrive, when a medical team arrives on scene of a disaster area, they, they apply triage And triage is a way for them to sort out uh, the worst case scenarios, the most uh, uh, horrific injuries with those who are minor. And so a person who has internal bleeding is going to be more severe than someone who has a broken arm even. Even though the broken arm might be louder, uh, the person might be yelling. The person who's unconscious with the internal, uh, they're, they're definitely worse off. And so there's triage that takes place in the medical world on a regular basis in ERs, but also with these natural disasters and medical emergencies that happen sometimes on great scales, on grand scales. And so when we take that kind of thinking and we apply it theologically, we have something called theological triage. And uh, Al Mohler has written some very helpful articles on this. Gavin uh, Ortland has also written some very helpful uh, articles on this. Mark Simpson has written some very important things on this. We're, we're going to get him to give us his, uh, his stuff, his two cents during the podcast, but hopefully I can talk him into writing an article on this uh, yeah. as well. So this is what Muller says. He says, uh, when thinking about this spiritual link from the medical to the theological, he says a discipline uh, in defining this um, theological triage, it is a discipline, a, the- a theological triage would require Christians to determine a scale of theological urgency that would correspond to the medical world's framework for medical priority. And so when we, when we do that, we recognize, uh, and we'll talk about this in a little bit, Pastor Will will talk about this, these levels of triage in theology. There are some that are essential to the gospel and some that aren't. I won't steal his thunder on that. But when it comes to us understanding that personally, there's also the element of how we relate to others, which is called cooperation. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I've taken sort of this definition from um, the Southern Baptist, and they say cooperation is when churches decide to cooperate with other like-minded churches to provide mutual encouragement for the advancement of God's kingdom through evangelism and missions. It's a great statement on what cooperation is. And really, you can't divorce triage from cooperation in the greater kingdom of God, they're just connected. Um, when I look at uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, and, and I'll invite y'all's input on this as well. In Psalm chapter one, uh, in Psalms chapter one hundred and thirty-three, there is a beautiful passage on unity um, that I think, when heated, brings a smile to the face of God, to the Father in heaven. Right, Pastor Will? Would you read that Psalm one thirty-three, and then we'll talk a little bit about that.
0: Sure. Uh, Psalm 133, verse 1. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard coming down, down upon the edge of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forever.
1: Okay, so if I ever wrote a blog post about this, it would be Aaron's Oily Beard. <laughs> Aaron's Oily Beard. That's a good idea. I should do that, right? Part one you and part two.
0: And if we wanted to start a business, it could be Aaron's Beard Oil. Oh,
1: mm-hmm. there you go. Oh, man, that would, that, would, that, would, that would sell. That's a slick idea. <laughs> All right, sorry. All right. So we look at this, and this has this beautiful statement, right, of, of how good, how pleasant it is. When Brothers Dwell in Unity. And what we're, we're trying to kind of look at is, is how essential it is to develop theological triage and a robust sort of theology of cooperation in relation to fulfilling this statement, right? Uh, I, I, I mean, what do you guys think about that, uh, that, that initial statement when you first read that? What, what kind of comes into your mind about what David is saying in this
2: song? uh I, you know what's interesting about it i think is just so Aaron's role at this point when this happened was he was being anointed to be the priest right. so he's the one who's standing between the people and and god and uh so there's this mediation that's taking place okay. there his his role and and god is the one right. who declared that that particular role and particularly pointed out Aaron as being that one, and so this is that visual of, of uh, God's choice of that. I think, and so for me, as I look at that idea of, God delights in unity, and we, when we as brothers in Christ, sisters in Christ, as churches, live in this place of cooperation that comes from a place of unity, what we are then displaying to the world is this unity that we can have through our mediator Jesus Christ, Um, and so. It just draws out and highlights that the the joy I think and the uh, the heart of God experiences when we display the gospel to the world around mm-hmm. us. So
0: yeah, it's a beautiful picture, isn't it? It's good. Yeah, I think it also uh, it emphasizes the priority of unity. Mm-hmm. Um, just think of it this way: if it's something that God prioritizes, then it's something that we should as well. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at Psalm one thirty three, and you couple it, let's say, with John seventeen, the high priestly prayer. Jesus is praying in the garden, hours before a crucifixion, and he's praying specifically that his people would be one as he and the Father are one. And so, I, I think, for God's people, it unity is not divorced from the overall mission that the church is to accomplish. Right, walking in the Spirit, and so it brings glory to God when brothers and sisters are united together, when when we come together and we're like-minded and we walk together side by side. Um, And that's to say that that's something that requires us to be um, proactive in. It's not something we sort of dismiss offhand or we sort of back our way into. It's something that we're diligently pursuing, maybe day by day, week by week, season by season, um, because it does matter. There there are, and and we'll talk about the consequences of it, right? The benefits of of unity as we go. Um, But I even think in in a larger scale, churches being united with one another, um, even outside of denominational affiliation, that, hey, kingdom work is, well, there are differences in maybe the way we worship or the way we function or practice, but the kingdom is one. And so we're walking towards the same goal, which is to make disciples and to Ultimately, accomplish you know worship on you know of the Lord, and so right. yeah, that's a off the top.
1: Yeah, I, I think when the, when I read this this portion of Scripture and you look at the actual words on it, it's uh, there's a lot that has to do with um, the top down effect of unity. You know how it comes from above through a mediator. And that's how we are empowered to stay unified with one another. Mm -hmm. I mean, when you look at this running down uh, uh, the beer, running down uh, uh, the collar, then falling down uh, from the mountains of Zion. And so it's sort of uh, we get this this picture that that for us today, if we were to apply this for three guys sitting around a table, um, we're connected through Christ. Mm -hmm. Right. We have the same father because of of Jesus in his work. And it is not only impossible for us to create that unity, it's impossible for us to sustain that unity apart from Him. And so I think that is a conversation that probably would have been extremely important for um, the Church of the New Testament to be reminded of, particularly the Church of Corinth, which we're going to move to in our second sort of example of the importance of unity uh, in First Corinthians chapter one, if you have uh, your your Bibles, your phones, or whatever um, is a great example of this. The church in Corinth was a factious group. you know they really lacked unity within it's the body word. but also with the leaders that they had. There was a disunity um, that was there, and so Paul appeals to them in First Corinthians chapter one, verse ten, he says, "I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ." that all of you agree that there be no division among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. He goes on and he talks about how people were aligning around Christian teachers, around Christian teachers that sort of maybe represented a different personality and a different way of doing things. And Paul is trying to get them to come back to the essential nature of the gospel. He was there to preach the gospel, not to see who he baptized as to section off a group that was his group versus somebody else's group. And they were just really dealing with with that kind of disunity. So I guess my question to you guys is, in light of that Old Testament passage of Psalm 133, as we look at this example of the church of Corinth um, and the disunity that is there, uh, what do we draw away as kind of the the all-out importance of the church being unified and the danger of them not being unified?
0: Yeah, you know, you look at First 1 Corinthians one ten and uh, the end of the the end of the verse, but that you be made complete in the same mind and the same judgment. I, I think disunity affects our our sanctification, mm-hmm. uh, right? Individually, and then obviously when we come together, that our growth has a very low ceiling for us, right? I mean, to to if unity has this effect of being made complete, that there's a, a realization and a fullness that we can experience as God's people, mm-hmm. then I think on the on the, the converse of that would be Disunity means that we persist in immaturity, at best, right? And so, um, again, going back to the idea that that unity is a priority for God's people, um, you couple this with, let's say, Ephesians four, right? Be diligent to preserve unity. Yeah. Then there's 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 something not just of the quality of what unity is, but also in the process that brings unity that yeah. we have to give ourselves over to. And, and obviously things like what we're talking about, doctrine, and the importance of, of maintaining a like-mindedness in what yeah. we believe and how we exercise our faith. Um, I think the, the, minimal, the minimal consequence or benefit, whichever way you want to look at it, um, of being united is that we're able to then grow as the Lord fully intends for us to grow.
1: Yeah, so an inability to apply theological triage impacts the um, the effectiveness of the greater kingdom of God, and really and yeah, uh, the sure. world that's looking on that sees disunity. It's a it's a terrible witness for sure. I mean, we're, what are your thoughts on this? This early Church of Corinth and these yeah. uh, this scenario. It goes further uh, on to describe uh, the difficulty they had, because really what we're talking about is if we can't agree on the essentials. Mm-hmm. Um, then we're going to be uh we're, we're going to be prevented from carrying out the
2: gospel, yeah well, I think one of the ironic things about this is so often when we talk about unity, I think we maybe as pastors or as church people think unity in terms of uh, or disunity in terms of other bodies, mm-hmm. other denominations, those yeah. kind of things, and that is important, but Corinth and Ephesians both were written to a particular a church. local church. That's good. And so the unity here that he's talking about is unity within that local That's right. body. That's great. And if we can't if we can't establish unity in the in that local body there's no way we're yeah. ever going to right. be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace with other denominations and you know I love 1 Corinthians I appeal to you yeah. Ephesians 4 I urge you mm-hmm. Paul is I mean he He uses those words for quite a few things. I mean, when he's talking about, you know, I I compel you, when he's talking about the gospel, to me, that's really what he's doing here is he's saying this is a this is an issue of first importance because you walk in a manner worthy. And, you know, Ephesians four of the call, which with you, which with you, which with you were called. And I think so often Gavin Ortland makes mention of Mm -hmm. this. It's not the doctrinal issues that we divide over. It's typically our heart issues. And so what we see here is I see language and terminology that Paul is using that is saying, okay, first of all, you've got to cut through why you're dividing and what's the disunity that's that's taking place here um, and recognize that uh, you have everything you need because of the empowering spirit that indwells you to not only be unified, but to make being unified something that you eagerly chase after um and uh you know it, it's ironic some of the things that we you know we argue over and he says in ephesians you know it, there's one body uh one spirit yeah, that spirit is right. the spirit that called you one lord one faith one baptism one god and father who is over all and through all and in all and how often are the anxieties that we have you know yeah um uh the things that drive us to that place of disunity and we're so quick to say uh you know especially now quick to say we have to divide because i can't get behind what you're doing mm-hmm. instead of being quick to go i'm i'm going to stay unified as long as i can right. uh you know and and uh but i am we are going to be discerning we're going to ask the Lord to do that, but again, it's it's the Spirit who gives us the ability to be unified. It's the Spirit that uh, is going to give us that discernment as well. And so, so anyway, I I think uh, a good word for us here, and the the word for the local church, and which then means I think the enemy uses this as a primary means of attack, is um, uh, focus more on seeking to maintain that unity in the Spirit than on trying to find those things of saying. You're outside of my particular right. camp. Um,
1: so. Yeah, that's a good word. You know, we 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 have all uh, talked about in, in separate conversations. We've talked about how important it is to um, to have this theological triage, and it's almost like Paul was saying you need to keep the main thing, the main thing, for the sake of unity, right? And so uh, there have been um, several different attempts to sort of show us the different levels of, of theological triage, right? Uh, 1600 years after Paul wrote this to the Corinthians, there is a fellow by the name of Rupertus, which is a great name to have. If you're thinking, if you're listening to this and you're thinking about naming your son something, consider Rupertus, <laughs> who uh, uh, I think was a, a German theologian. Anyway, uh, anyway, so Rupertus has this great statement that is really a great transition into what Pastor Will is going to review with us, and that is the the levels of triage. So um, I think um, Al Mohler lists three, and Gavin Ortland has four, and Rupertus has three, right? <laughs> so um, so maybe they pulled a little from him. So but he has this statement that I think is helpful for us. He says, "In essentials, in terms of thinking about." doctrine and theology. In essentials, unity. We must be unified. In non-essentials, we must have liberty or show liberty towards one another. Uh, but in all things, charity. So in all things, with the, the bookends of love, the parenthesis of, of love that is important. So it was an important way for the people of that time t- to understand triage and cooperation. Um, but as we fast forward into the 21st century... We have folks that are still trying to help us with this idea of triage and cooperation. And so, Pastor Will, would you kind of review those with us and maybe just give briefly some of the the examples
0: of what could be considered those uh, primary doctrines, secondary, whatever. Just go through that. Yeah, so triage, uh, the you know, prefix tri is three, right? So we'll look at it from three three <laughs> levels,
1: <laughs> right? Well, there's actually four. Oh, well, that's true. If you include the, the last one that sounds like a stomach disease. And if you're listening, you may have five or six, and that's, <laughs> that's eight <laughs> to each his own, right? All <laughs> right. Uh, so triage, <laughs> theological triage, uh, just
0: picture with me again, I, I, I sort of mentioned this last week, picture a triangle, right, or a pyramid, if you will and uh, divide that pyramid into three sections, top to bottom, the top part obviously being the smallest, um, but that's where we would stick, let's say, the essential doctrines, right. the, the core part of, uh, of what we believe, the core tenets of the faith. Uh, scripturally, these would be things like uh, salvation by grace through faith. Right. These are the, the gospel essentials yeah. um, where if you were to take away or add to, the gospel would be inherently changed. Or completely destroyed, depending on what we're dealing with, right? So, salvation, uh, these would be issues like uh, the virgin birth, the issues of like the second coming. Now, I don't mean your view of the second coming, as much as I mean that Jesus is coming again, right? (laughs) Issues like uh, the the death, burial, and resurrection, bodily resurrection, bodily ascension, those kinds of core, central ideas that are unique uh, to Christianity. And so, primary are those essentials, right? Secondary, though, are those uh, doctrines that are not necessarily unimportant they're still important okay but they don't rise to the level of essential or core um, but they are they they do maybe deal with issues of um, church function uh, church worship um, they're essential to the health of an individual church maybe a denomination of churches um, but not necessarily impacting the gospel truths themselves okay so and this is where we maybe get into some of the the, I don't say the mud, but this is where <laughs> some folks would say, well, what's a secondary doctrine to me is, you know, tertiary for you or vice versa. Um, I know personally, I would view things like um, mode of, of baptism, whether it's immersion or sprinkling. I know some uh, we're Baptists here, so I know that that might be anathema to some people, um, but I, I view that as a secondary issue. Um the way we partake of communion, whether it's uh, juice and bread or it's one cup or it's wine or it's whatever intinction, whatever it is, um, I view that as a secondary issue. We're united in the gospel, but the, the practice of the ordinances or the sacraments, however, whatever you call them, um, may look different denomination to denomination. Um, secondary issues would be things like uh, maybe ecclesiology, um, how we view church government. Right? We're Baptists. We're, we're sort of independent in that sense, autonomous local churches versus uh, Presbyterian, a Presbyterian church, which has a presbytery, right? Uh, elder rule versus elder led versus single senior. Those are maybe secondary issues. Yeah. Um, but then you have tertiary issues, uh, what we would maybe call third rank doctrines uh, that are still important, but maybe require a little bit more nuance and discussion to really grasp and understand. Yeah. Um, I would I would also say this that where Primary doctrines divide Christians from the world, and secondary doctrines may separate believer from believer. I don't see tertiary doctrines, third rank doctrines, as rising to the level of dividing us or disunifying us. This might just be a difference of opinion, a difference of understanding, whatever it would be, right? Um, So, third rank doctrines. Eschatology, yeah. Right. Oh, man. <laughs> might actually be our views of, of mm-hmm. the second coming, whether you're, you're pre-mill, post-mill, a-mill, whatever it is, right? Um, it might be things like uh, cessationism versus uh, the spiritual gifts, right? Gifts for today. Um, some folks would raise those to secondary, maybe even primary issues. Um, it might be the role of women in, in, in the church. How do women, uh, can women be elders or pastors? What, what's the discussion there? Yeah. Um, and so I, I think primary, essential, secondary, functional, uh, tertiary are just sort of those nuanced ways of looking at, right. at a variety of issues yeah. uh, that don't necessarily rise to second or, or first right. rank. So yeah. I'll follow so far.
1: Yeah, and I'll, the, the one that's on there, because that is, that is uh, I think, the ad- addition of Ortland. Is uh, the uh, indifferent one? It's uh, a diaphoria, which sounds like a stomach sickness to me. So, <laughs> anyway, so there just matters that <laughs> does seem really important. So that might be like uh, uh, that was really kind of funny. Color yeah. of the carpet, <laughs> so, uh, color of carpet could be musical instrumentation at a church or those kind of things. So, um, so I just I guess the question I have for you guys, and I'll start with Mark, is. Um, Mark, if you want to talk about those um, four categories and the distinction, make some additional comments on what Pastor Will shared, and then uh, lead into why is this important for local Mm -hmm. church pastors and lay church leaders? I mean, that's a loaded question, I know, and I really just (laughs) want to hear your heart on
2: it, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Well, Will, you did a phenomenal job, in my opinion, of, of <laughs> describe, <laughs> describing and, and providing the distinctions between between each of those. So I, I don't know that I have really anything that would build or, or add to what what you shared there. It was it was just so good. Uh, the one thing I would say in terms of why triage is important in our churches today uh, is. A couple of things. One, um, we really live in a place, in a in a time, culturally, in which we like short, we like simple. Uh, we, you know, we even said simplify this for me and right. simplify. You know, short doesn't necessarily mean better, and, and complex doesn't necessarily mean that. Uh, you know, simple isn't better, complex isn't better. Um, but in this case. By simplifying, sometimes what we do is then we also flatten. And so, you know, we want everything to be quote unquote equal. We want everything to be on the same playing field. And yet, as we do that, we recognize that we really end up in a place that it's much, it's difficult to sustain that because in our world and in our thinking, in, in everything that we do, even, you know, use the medical application, well, it, It is not possible for a doctor to say I'm going to treat everything as of the same priority. Um, And if, you know, uh, I would hope if I were in the ER and somebody came in and, and, you know, they've got a matter of minutes to live if they're not treated and I have a broken finger that I'm going to say that person takes priority. Mm -hmm. So as pastors, we really have to help our people understand and we have to understand that there is prioritization, prioritization that takes place within our doctrines, and some have a greater weight than others, and um, and that's not an easy process to navigate. Uh, we have Peter and Paul, who in the scriptures confronted one another on a doctrinal issue mm-hmm. in which Paul had to call out Peter and say, listen, what you're doing, it's not okay, and it's hurting it's hurting the Gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, you, then you can go through history and look at these same things, but it makes the point. but I, and I think for us what what we do is uh, we tend we tend to um, I, it was either Muller or Ortonland that said this. when it comes to this idea of triage, we tend to go to one extreme. We either want to fight or we want to flee. Mm. Um, and so one leads to this sectarianism. Yeah. Which is that attitude, that belief, that practice that contributes to unnecessary division in the That's body right. of Christ? Um, I can I can rejoice with my Presbyterian brothers and and sisters, even though I can't be a pastor in a Presbyterian church because I believe in um, I believe in believer's baptism and that that is what Scripture teaches. So, convictionally, I'm going to go right. that route, but. I'm not saying that because of that, my Presbyterian brothers and sisters are not preaching the gospel and they're not going to be in heaven with me. Um, So though that is, you know, as Will said, that's a secondary issue for me. It does have significance. Mm -hmm. um, And I need to be able to to discern that. And I need to be able to discern that for people who are coming into my church as well, because if someone comes in and they're hardcore you know, infant baptism and, you know, Mm -hmm. then and if they want to cling to that, then perhaps my fellowship, the, you know, the local church that I'm at is not the best one, but I should be able to recommend. I think you're going to love this pastor. and I think you're going to love this church. So that's that, you know, getting away from that sectarianism. But the other side of it, too, is just this minimalism where, you know, sectarianism is the cancel culture. So we we move toward this whole thing of if you don't agree with me, I'm just going to cancel you. I have no right to listen to you. You have no right to talk to me until you actually get on the right page, which is my page. You know, you have to hear my truth. Mm -hmm. The other side of it is that minimalism, which leads to the mindset that's in opposition to dividing over any kind of doctrine and rather seeks to focus on this nebulous idea of love and compassion where it's like, well, love is love. And so, you know, God it's not God is love. It's love is God. Mm -hmm. And so therefore it creates this love that's devoid of really what love is. And it's just lacks a backbone to be able to stand on anything at all. And so, um, we have to stay away from, from that as well, because again, we go to these doctrines where, um, Uh, you know, another, another great one is, well, here's an example from history, Luther and and Zwingli, you know, and that one's over the Lord's Supper. Mm -hmm. And, uh, um, uh, Luther, I would say in my opinion, and that's all it is probably (laughs) lean towards sectarianism in, in that. And, and yet at the same time, you have, uh, you have those who are trying to, trying to say to him, um, you know can't we just agree on this for the sake of unity and luther's like i can agree with zwingli on 11 things but because i can't agree with them on that 12th one we just you know we just can't have have fellowship and and uh, you know so you can't you don't you want to bring people to the center but uh, but these things do do matter and we should be able to in our fellowship in our churches be able to have dialogues in which you know uh Concerning the Lord's Supper, if you know, if Will is saying, "I just, I just really believe it's it's a memorial. It's you know, it, it's symbolic. When we go there, it's there's nothing special um, in terms of like magical that happens. This is not the real presence right. of Christ. This is not you know the spiritual presence of Christ. This is this is simply something we do to remember. Sure. Um, he should be able to have that conversation, and we should sharpen one another. If I say no, there." There is the spiritual presence of Christ is there. Um, And, you know, that's where it helps us to go to that center place and avoid the tendencies in our culture of either cancel culture or or let's just all, uh, you know, agree on everything. And your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. And and we're just going to hug.
1: So. Yeah, and there's, I think, practical ways, you know, for for folks that are listening into this, uh, mm-hmm. pastors and and church leaders, and t- to try to apply these, right? To say, uh, you know, Wayne Hills was a part of the the revivals this past summer. Uh, to say that I can't come together with other churches to uh, to worship and to hear the gospel proclaimed, enjoy fellowship, right? Um, that's something that that we can do together because that's the gospel as the, the central component, right? Mm-hmm. But with mm-hmm. those same churches, if I were to say, okay, we're going to hold a communion service together or a mm-hmm. baptism service together, that would be difficult to do. Sure. And, and the thing, I, I think the, the phrase that kept th- coming through my mind, and I, I realize it's nuanced, is that unity doesn't always mean uniformity. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, yeah. you know, we can be agreed in the essentials of the gospel, but when it comes to those secondary and below, you know, let, let's go back to Rupertus, liberty, right, and charity, uh, and so that's essential for us to apply as we're engaging with other churches and other believers, right? Uh, I remember growing up and being in a church softball league, and uh, there were some teams that wouldn't play other teams because their churches didn't use the King James Version. <laughs> and I'm thinking, this is softball. If there is a, if there is ever an diaphora or aphoria or whatever that fourth category is, right? Still can't say it. If ever there was that, it's church softball. Like, come on, we're hitting a ball with a stick, you know, and drinking Pepsis afterwards. Why can't you have fellowship? So you see extremes like that played out where there's a lack of love and a lack of liberty. And, um, you know, if we, again, come back to Rupertus um, Maldinius. If we back up just a hundred years or so uh, before he wrote that track, we're in a time uh, in the church that, um, man, really needed help. Right, mm-hmm. we were in the time of the Anabaptist, um, where there wasn't too much shown uh, that we would we would say is uh, love or liberty shown. There was there was instead mm-hmm. um, a lot of extremism. I mean, you mentioned uh, Luther and you mentioned Zwingli not being able to come together on mm-hmm. those that twelfth point, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. But there was also other extremes, mm-hmm. um, and so uh, let, let's talk a little bit about that, and then wow. I'll kind of reverse our. Our, uh, our outline here. Um, we'll end talking about some of the effective ways that the church has come together through councils and creeds and confessions. We'll talk about some of those differences. But you know, all of us are sort of nerds in some way. Say that in a kind <laughs> way. But these, this Anabaptist time, this Anabaptist Reformation. Um, you know, uh, Mark or Will, um, talk about the rub. Talk about the tension that was there between those Anabaptist and the Roman Catholic Church. Let's talk a little bit about the difference um, that they had. And then we can kind of move through with um, perhaps considering the extreme uh, measures that they took yeah. to correct. And uh, right. Yeah.
0: yeah. So I'll, I'll uh, talking about the Anabaptist Reformation. I'll, I'll focus in on the sort of the pedobaptism baptism side of it, because I think that was a, a, a big one. Um, you, know, um, you know, you mentioned having Presbyterian friends. I have quite a few as well. And so those are sometimes funny conversations we have back and forth or, you know, little, little digs, but there was a time in history where that, those were not funny, yeah. <laughs> funny yeah. little asides, yeah. no, you, know, you know, you're sending, you're not sending memes or gifts to one another. Yeah. Yeah. You know, th- this yeah. <laughs> 500 years ago, this was a, a, not just a point of division, but really one side lobbing grenades to the other in condemnation, right? Uh, essentially, uh, condemning their souls to hell because of their opposite views on something like paedo baptism, um, and I mentioned earlier in in sort of reviewing triage that I've, I view the mode of baptism as being secondary. Um, they did not, yeah. <laughs> and there was a lot of uh, not not just separation between you know the Anabaptists and let's say the Roman Catholics on on, on the issue, um, but really even now sort of the, the Anabaptist, you know, Mennonite, Amish sort of uh, groups, There, there's a complete separation even still from even the mainstream denominations that would agree with them on things like in, um, uh, in um, credo-baptism to where even a Southern Baptist, they, they might even view us closer to a Roman Catholic than they would their own group, right? And so uh, I think we have Historically, this deep chasm in the way people sort of latched onto their doctrinal convictions, and that led to um, just fractures within within the, the sort of Christian world, right? I think in a practical level for us, um, I, I think if we understand practically secondary doctrines, let's say like modes of baptism, I think we, we need to remember that they don't separate believers. Right? We're united in the gospel. We're, we're brought together in Christ. But I think they do allow those secondary issues, allow for us to worship the Lord in good faith, in good conscience. And I remember uh, years ago, you know, sort of a younger believer, pre-ministry days, sort of levying the charge against the church that, oh, well, God's people are not united because there's so many denominations, right? And I've moved away from that idea in the years since, because I think what it does is it allows us to to worship in good faith. And the scriptures remind us: anything not done in faith is sin, right? And right. so, where you mentioned, you know, we have Presbyterian friends that practice paedo-baptism, but we can never be a Presbyterian pastor because right. of that. Mm-hmm. I think there's there's a lot of truth in that idea. Mm-hmm. We're united in the essential, but we may we may differ in the practice of some of those secondary ideas. And historically, the the church is, well. I want to say they've they've ebbed and flowed <laughs> in how they've handled it, yeah. but early yeah. on, this those were issues of deep, not just conviction, but deep chasm. Right? Yeah,
1: and and you know, I I'm, I guess the question I have for uh, for Mark, I'm kind of curious what your thoughts are on this, but. Uh, the Anabaptist Reformers, um, how could they maybe have approached things a little bit differently? <laughs> <laughs> and Roman Catholic Church, sure. how could they have applied um, Rupertus Meldenius's uh, words, which weren't actually written at that time, I understand. Um, and, and kind of what's your, your thought on this? It's it's this um, slice of history that we see the extremes
0: uh, yeah. applied, right? Yeah. From you're, the sectarian you're about team. to solve. Hundreds of years oh of God. church history. Yeah. And, and so, yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, Just in your,
1: just in your, uh, in, your in, in the next three minutes, summarize. Yeah, right. yeah, But cool. just your, you know, your kind of thoughts on that. Your, your, you know. your, feeling towards that of these Anabaptists and the interactions and how that all yeah. transpired. Yeah.
2: So, so a word that has fallen out of favor in in our vocabulary today is a word that I think would have been helpful. For them now, uh, it's it's the word civility, Hmm. conversation, dialogue, and so I'll I'll say this and then I'll kind of unpack it a little bit. Um, If someone is a lost person, if someone is uh, so so, let's say we are treating. So when you've got Anabaptist and you've got you know you've got the you've got the radical reformers, which would be the Anabaptists. You've got the um, you've got the I'm forgetting the word right now, Um, uh, magisterial reformers, which, you know, you've got Luther's Wingley. So they're wanting to reform the Roman Catholic Church from within. And the radical reformers are saying there's nothing within the church that's that is redeemable. So that's why they're radically reforming. They're saying we're breaking and we're starting over because we can't do this. Um, So if you've got radical reformers who are saying this group is lost and they're just trying to redeem something that is lost. So they're headed for a path for hell. Um, and then you've got these folks over here who are saying they're leading us down a path of heresy um, and would use words that strong. If that's the case, um, there is this there is this measure of civility that if we have a conversation or a dialogue um, then it opens the door for us to be able to then continue to have conversations. Now, we know from the example of Christ that there are times where we do have to speak strongly. We have to speak truth. Um, and yet sometimes I think we impose the the attitude and the, the tone with which Jesus says things to people like the Pharisees. And I, I wonder if there wasn't more of a grieving, I, I hate that I have to say this tone, when Jesus was saying some of these strong words to, to the Pharisees. So anyway, the reason why I say that is because we, again, we like to let, let's let's stick with this. The Anabaptists, the, you know, the, the magisterial reformers and their, you know, the issue of, of baptism. That is a complex issue yeah. because you have the Anabaptists who are looking at this and they're saying, as I read scripture, mm-hmm. I see that baptism is important. But the order of baptism is that right. salvation comes baptism, baptism follows, right. and they're looking at the Magisterial reformers in their view of baptism, and they're and they're saying you're saying that baptism precedes, right? But you've got you've got these Magisterial reformers who are saying this is rooted in the Old Testament and it's a covenant theology approach, mm-hmm. whereas your Anabaptists are looking at it and they're they're mm-hmm. seeing it more as. This, you know, they wouldn't use the word covenant theology in, in that sense. So you've got that layer. Then you've got the layer on top of that of the relationship between the church and the state at the time in which the census was done through the church. Yeah. Taxes, pastors were paid through the taxes that the the state um, took from or, you know, imposed upon people. And then a pastor would be paid from those taxes. The way that they knew how many people were living in a household was through baptism. Yeah, And so you've got this complex connection of the church and the state and a political issue there. You've got an interpretation of the entirety of scripture, which is a doctrinal issue. And then you've got, um, and then you've just got the personal feelings, feeling very strongly mm-hmm. about the perspective of the church, which, and we could then Add other layers to this, which is why I think civility and conversation is so important to be our first posture and yeah, why really Paul says in Corinthians and uh, and Peter says in, in his writings, Paul says that in Ephesians, you have got to be eager to maintain unity. Um, let's be slow within the body of Christ yeah. to defy, divide and quick to be have civil conversations where we can sharpen one another. Sure. So. Um, so yeah, anyway, I think that's not only relevant then, and that doesn't mean it would have solved everything (laughs) any more than it will today, but I think it's a posture that more reflects what Will was saying in John 17, where people are going to look, and when they evaluate the church today, do they say, we know that they're disciples of Jesus because of the love they have for one another, or do they look and say, man, there's, there's just so... The thing I I hear a lot why are there so many denominations? Why are there so many different churches? Why does this person, you know, those kind of things? So I would just go back to you. A good place to start would be civility.
1: Yeah, I think it's good. I think when you say civility, you say conversation. Um, I think if we were to even back up from the Anabaptist Reformation and we consider the early church, it didn't take long for there to creep up um, heresy mm-hmm. and teaching that was aberrant uh, and for the church to say, okay, we need to listen and understand what is being taught here, right? And which really there was a, a, a procession or there was a, a process. And this is kind of where uh, I want us to steer a conversation as we kind of end on this would just be to see the way the church responded, where they would listen they would, they would gather, they would listen, and then there would be a determination. And um, sometimes uh, uh, there was this, in creed or in written paper, there was, now we're going to galvanize the decision that's being made. Um, and and so, uh, so there's sort of this pattern that emerges. In the first eight centuries, there's at least seven of these ecumenical councils and that were really vital for the church. And so for the past, you know, fourteen or 1,300 years, whatever it is, we have been eating some of the fruits um, that these councils um, uh, forged, right, that mm-hmm. they planted these mm-hmm. seeds, and now we're still eating them because they were willing, civility, they were willing to, to listen, mm-hmm. they were willing to dialogue, they were willing to um, make a decision that, preserve the orthodoxy of of doctrine now they didn't do it perfectly because obviously and you guys can you know both maybe talk to that uh as well uh because you know there were times where it's like you don't agree with us um you know okay here's torture and death right (laughs) Uh, so it wasn't always the perfect system but the pattern of civility of gathering of hearing of determining and then of making resolutions and that is is pretty important even for us to look at that model um, and not follow it to the T, but but to say that civility expressed through councils, expressed through creeds, expressed through confessions
0: is so important.
1: I mean, what do you think about that when you think about the early church and some of those things that took place?
0: Yeah, uh, you know, looking at, uh, let's say, the, you know, the first council in Icia, let's just say. You know, dealing with the divinity of Christ and the heresy of Arianism Arianism was a maybe a repackaged heresy sort of an old heresy taking on a new form yeah because John deals with Gnosticism in his letters towards the end of his life and he he rails against it pretty harshly in it right and so I I think you know you you talk about civility and dialogue what I think it allows us to do maybe this is a lost art even within uh, contemporary church settings is, The idea and the process of critical thinking Mm. to look at, to hear someone say, I believe X, Y, and Z, so-and-so, such-and-such, and and not maybe straw-man their idea, but actually sit down and say, okay, I'm hearing you say this. I have my own thoughts on maybe how I want to respond, but can you unpack that for us a little bit more, right? And so instead of just saying, well, this person believes this and therefore we need to scrap them or cancel them or, you know, divide over this, we sit down and we say, even if we come to the conclusion of, hey, we're going to have to agree to disagree, right? You have a different version of, you understand this differently than what I do based on on the scriptures. I think that process is super important, serves as a model for us to say, hey, we need to maybe engage a little bit more critically with ideas because ideas are not just things in the universe. Ideas are held by people, and if we're if we're going to take the command to love one another, not just the brethren, but enemies and neighbors and other people, right, those around us, then I think it requires us to really dig a little deeper than we than we currently do. And I think the, the councils specifically allowed for that. Now they didn't always come to. <laughs> you know, I'm not advocating burning at the stake or tossing <laughs> someone in the, you know, into the denue, but <laughs> you know. <laughs> Yeah. I think the process in right. and of itself that allowed for this, the discussions to happen, for the differences to be made aware, and to really look at someone and say, hey, we, we completely disagree on this one issue. We're going to have to go our separate ways. I think there's so much value in that because I think what you end up seeing now is just the complete opposite, right? There's just a, a sort of, a, well, this person says this and I, I disagree and therefore we can't have any sort of fellowship or any unity Meanwhile, you may not be hearing things rightly. And I think the other thing is that I'm not, so I I want to be careful when I say this because I'm not quite sure that I'm saying it the way I intended, but I I don't think the scriptures necessarily give us individual authority Mm -hmm. to pass judgment on someone else. I think there's a corporate responsibility that we see to, to gauge truth correctly or to diagnose truth as being incorrect. But me, Pastor Will, I don't have sole authority to look at Pastor Jamie or Pastor Mark and say, you're wrong, you're not a Christian, you can't. I just don't see that type of power and governance given to individuals. Does that make sense? And so I think what the confessions or the uh, councils do is they allow us to come together corporately with a variety of minds and, and wisdom collectively to look at an issue or to look at, at a doctrine or, or really even you know even things like church discipline to look at a person's life and, and sort of make corporate right. determinations that way. So I, I think the process of that, the mm-hmm. the model of that is super helpful. Sure. 21st century, you know, February, 2021. Mm-hmm. That's good. That's what are good. Thoughts, Mark? Mm-hmm. Um,
2: you Mark? What's interesting is, you know, today one of the big things that we struggle over is people mm-hmm. in power abusing that power. Mm-hmm. And because they have the power, they're able to push through what they want. And the Council of Nicaea, um, some would argue that the council itself was, was that because of Constantine calling it and things like that. What's ironic, though, is the way in which if we if we track these things historically, which we are able to do because of the documentation that we have of history and, uh, you know, with the Council of Nicaea. Here you have Athanasius, who at that time was just a deacon. You know, he's there with the Bishop of Alexandria and, uh, and you know, having an influence through what he writes but um, wasn't the bishop at that time. But when he became the bishop of Alexandria, you you do have this jo- jockeying and jostling of power <laughs> to where Athanasius goes from being the bishop to being exiled seven times over the course of that period. And yet, um, Athanasius in 363, um, I'm going to kind of deviate from this because I think it's a really cool example of how the church, what you're talking about, the tradition of the church really being a voice for us to be able to have mm. a great evaluation. And we don't exalt that to the level of scripture, right. but it really does help us to have. There is wisdom in a multitude of counselors right. and history, <laughs> the leaders of history can be that. 363, he, uh, Athanasius is the Bishop of Alexandria. He writes his letter for Easter declaring what the date of Easter is going to be. And in that, he is the first person of the early church fathers to give a list of the 27 books of the New Testament. No additional ones um, that he added. He didn't take any away. 363. Now, we have to look at what happened before that, and it's a picture of the church trying to have dialogue, trying to engage in critical thinking, all of these things, because you did not have Paul and Peter you know, uh, and and John and Mark and Matthew who are saying, OK, here are the books that will comprise the New Testament. This was a process that was taking place 300 years long. First thing that happens, 170 roughly, you have the Muratorian Canon. It's the first one that's written. It has some of the books of the New Testament that we consider today. It had some extras and it had some missing. You also have in there two people that were labeled heretics or false teachers, um, Marcion, and uh, and Montanus. Marcion wanted to pull everything away because he said the Old Testament God is not the same as the New Testament God. And then he added his own commentary on the 11 books of Paul that he felt were the New Testament, the books of scripture. So he's trying to pull away. Um, that motivated the church to be critical thinkers and to take mm-hmm. what he had done and say, okay, what do we do with that? Montanus, on the other hand, is saying, I have prophetic words from the spirit and those who follow me do. And so these are the words mm-hmm. of God. Um, what happens? Moritory and Canon, you've got origin, you've got Eusebius, you have others who begin to make their lists. And then they make this determination of, okay, three things that comprise what will be considered scripture. They have to be accepted within the churches and wasn't the day of, you know, internet and all that kind of stuff. And so which books are being circulated and being read when the church gathers together? Um, was it written by an apostle or someone who knew an apostle and so on and so forth? Which leads us up to then Athanasius, who in 316 or 363 is this exiled pastor. Um, bishop is writing this list of 27, taken all of what he had gathered, puts that together in a list of 27, and then it takes 30 more years, the Council of Carthage, the Council of Hippo, 393, 397, where the church as a whole in this council says, we recognize, recognize, we don't authorize. We have not said that we're putting our stamp of authority. We recognize these are the 27 books upon which God has said, this is my divinely inspired word for the church. And so it takes 300 years for that to happen. Lots of critical thinking, lots of civil conversations, and in that we even see in that process this whole aspect of recognizing: okay, these folks are false teachers. We need to acknowledge that, and you know, here's what we take, and here's what we here's what we push away. Um, doing all of this, I think it's just a beautiful picture of the early church over generations modeling what we should still be seeking to do today.
1: Yeah. It's a great point, I think, because uh, we had mentioned it several different times that um, as we are trying to grapple with some of these issues, that um, we're not the only ones that are in the room, that we have our children, right? We have other generations. We have folks who are outside the covenant of uh, of faith. They're looking to see how we're responding to all of this stuff, right? And I think that's important because the generational aspect is there, that we're passing the baton of the gospel to the next generation as we leave. Um, but as we, as they receive that baton of the gospel, they're also seeing how they're supposed to interact with one another in the world. Um, perhaps the reason that there is such a growing uh, group of what they call N-O-N-E-S, nuns, is because the church hasn't done a good job of theological triage, cooperation and this third word that I should have added to the, uh, the to the uh, the title of this uh, podcast civility civility mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. is that if anyone should be civil it should be believers in Christ because we can be because again let's go back to Aaron's oily beard <laughs> because it's coming down from above <laughs> and through the mediator of Christ that we have the power to listen to one another and to operate out of inner peace and uh, and to try to work that unity, right? Um, we're unified in Christ, but we're also unif- unified in the mission that he's given us. We're unified in the hope that we have beyond this world. Uh, you know, think of that old term, uh, what is it, semper, reformanda, reformata, the church reformed, always reforming. Hmm. And that is the long view of triage. The long view of uh of cooperation is that it's never done until we're in heaven. We can't sit back and just say, well, we've all arrived. No, it's not that's not the way it's gonna be. Hmm. Even in the past fifty years, and kind of close out on this, um even in the past fifty years, the church has had to come together um for councils. They've come together for uh, confessions of faith, right? Even in um, the Southern Baptist, uh, they have the Baptist faith in message 2000, which was not the first, right? There's the 63 and 20 something, I think. right? And so even that, every every couple of decades, the, <laughs> the church has got to come together and say, okay, let's let's regather. Let's address the, the culture that's around us. Let's see uh, where we stand on the essentials. Um, and it's going to have to happen again. There'll be a Baptist Faith and Message 2050 or whatever. Um, There's even statements that come out that clarify other issues that perhaps would be secondary, like the Danvers Statement, um, uh, talking about gender and even the Nashville Statement um, that has that same kind of feel to it of this is what family and uh, gender is and all that kind of thing, according to a biblical perspective. So we still have those things, but, um, man, I just love the conversation with you guys and, uh, Pastor Mark, you're welcome back anytime. Uh, we, we really enjoy talking to you. Thank you. And uh, I enjoy as well. we're going to hold hold you accountable to writing an article for
2: us for <laughs> the Valley
1: Shepherds website. Okay. And uh, we look forward to having you um, having you again. You have any closing thoughts?
2: Sure. I just appreciate the opportunity to uh, talk about this and uh, other things that are so so beneficial and relevant for pastors today in churches. So great job, guys.
0: Amen. Thanks. All right, everybody, we will see you next week. Um, we have an interesting discussion next week that I won't tell you until we get there. So, that's true. yep, we'll see you then.